Matthew 17, 1 through 9. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before him. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The kids are invited to kids' church with Emily. There he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. This Sunday is a a fitting end to our Sermon on the Mount uh, series, although it's not tied to the Sermon on the Mount, in the sense that it ends with the command to listen to him, Um, that God from heaven speaks differently than in the baptism. In the baptism, the, the listen to him is not there, but here that listen to him is expressed. And this, um, this Sunday is, is a hinge Sunday, not just for us, but for the Gospels. The way of enacting this story is most clear in Mark, is that Jesus is walking around um, Galilee, um, healing people, taking boating trips with his friends, um, going about uh, being greeted, eat, taking meals. And what happens is, and we're going to go over this in, in, as we go through it, is that Peter asks, who do people, or Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And this is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Peter gives an answer that, that we'll see here in a moment from, uh, we'll just pull it up. Peter gives an answer that, that some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. That this instance here, um, which in Matthew's gospel is phrased that way, but in Mark and Luke, it happens in near the same pattern. What happens is, is right after that, Jesus begins to speak that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, that the Messiah must die. And if you're reading the gospels slowly, this ending isn't apparent to you yet, per se. The idea that this one who has walked around healed, has been received in many ways, is is teaching with the authority of Moses, is going to go to Jerusalem, not to conquer as king, not to set up a new kingdom, but to die, would be a bit shocking. 
as it is to Peter. This is this fame in moments where Peter says, you know, let's not have it be that way. And after this, uh, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jodah, uh, that was revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my, my father in heaven, which is like an A plus, if you hear that from Jesus, in my opinion, is next rebuked with get behind me, Satan, which is, you know, I grade on the curve, let's say a D minus, um, probably an F. Um, and so this, this break happens in these three Gospels. And what happens from there is Jesus sets out for the cross. And Luke, it's phrased this way, he sets his face resolutely towards Jerusalem. That the road he's going to walk from that moment forward is this road to this conflict in Jerusalem that will be his crucifixion. And so Transfiguration Sunday, which we do every year, falls um, before we start our road to the cross with Jesus, which, which is classically called Lent. We call it our, the road to the cross or Lent 2. We have Ash Wednesday this week. But it's that time where we too turn and say to walk this story faithfully. We just don't get the Sermon on the Mount that instructs us. We don't just get um, miracles and all that stuff. We don't just get parables. But we also have to walk the road with him. What Jesus says to Peter is that the disciples are going to have to pick up their cross and follow him. And so what this means for us as we make this turn this Sunday is we're going to see what happens in the transfiguration as this way of bringing us to where do we pick up our cross and follow Jesus in the world. Now, one of the hard parts, I'm, to, I'm reversing much of my tact on preaching this. This, like I said, is every year. And it's interesting because most of the events um, that are in the, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke um, are, are in the creed and are repeated every year. The baptism of Jesus, we, we do every year at Defiance Church. Obviously, the cross and resurrection we do every year at Defiance Church. And so transfiguration hits that as well, which is a bit of an odd thing because as Protestants, we don't have a lot to say about the transfiguration. My favorite thing, and when I say my favorite thing, I mean the opposite to say about it, is it's easy to follow Jesus while we're up here on the... But what are you going to do when you go back down into the valley? Yes, uh, if you've ever been on a youth trip or a mission trip or a men's weekend, that somebody will get up at the end of the week and just say, hey guys, we were up on the mountain but we're going back down to the valley. And what I've realized in this past year is um, heuristics and truisms like that actually carry a lot of depth to them. Um, And so so I'm trying to think through, and I'm not prepared to preach it this year because I just am coming to this realization myself, that there's something deep that's true there. That, that when we see these glimpses of glory, we begin to make promises to ourselves. I mean, the reason why that reiterates and we all laugh is because we often, no matter how many times I hear that message at the end of some great event, all my goals and hopes just sort of fade away anyways. It, I think almost we make a joke of it because it becomes a joke in our inability to live up to it anyways. It's not, um, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, but that's one of the most common said sort of said about this in Protestant circles. Um, in Roman Catholic circles, uh, and Kelly has a bi- study Bible she's going through where they, they mentioned it's important that it's Peter who's there because he is the first pope, um, which is like, okay, well, that's uh, clever. But that the best part about it was St. Thomas Aquinas says he's there because he loves Jesus the most. And John is there because Jesus loves John the most. And I was like, what's uh 
a love triangle in Thomas Aquinas here is that Peter loves Jesus the most, but Jesus loved John the most. And so uh, you could see how that conflict might come about. Um, but Catholics get into that way. And then last year, what I tried to do, um, and I think I failed that because the sermon's meaning would have only been clear to me, and I'm not sure. I refused to re-listen to it because it didn't go as well as I'd hoped, As I spent all week listening to basically a dissertation on how the Orthodox see in the transfiguration the, the eclipsing of creation, that, that this is what we will all be and what all creation will be someday, and it's a glimpse into that. Um, and I nerded out so hard on that, what I got up here was is just babbled. Um, and so I've retreated on my deep theology. I still believe that, and it's still one of those things that's dear to me, but um, many of you may not know this, um, but the closer the meaning of something is to me that I'm fascinated by it, the worse the sermon is. And the more I've studied all week, and it's like, I got something to say. Yeah, I guess. I will often hear from you guys, that was really good. Um, (laughs) And so I'm trying to figure out how to bring my passion to, to sermons that mean a lot to me in a way that, that hopefully they mean a lot to you, but, but maybe sometimes they're for the preacher and, and that's what we're stuck with. Um, um, but that's sort of what happens here. And the part of the problem is with this, or the greatness of this transfiguration scene, is it comes sort of out of nowhere. I, as I said, Kelly's been reading through the Gospel of Matthew at the start of this year, and what happens is, is it, the, it takes place on sort of a normal plane. All the events are within like this idea of like Jesus, somebody's sick, Jesus heals them. Jesus stands up and teaches. Jesus does these things. And what happens after this confession of faith by Peter and him going up the mountain is it like shifts context. It's, it's almost like Jesus is revealed as something more, but it's not quite queer, clear why this scene just sort of shows up. There's biblical study scholars, which is often like not the greatest field, we'll talk about this as a misplaced resurrection scene, that somehow the gospel writers, all three of them, moved it way up in the narrative because they were confused. Um, And there's both, I think, what I hear that, I think there's part of a truth to it, because what we do see in the transfiguration is a glimpse into the resurrected life into the transfigured Jesus who's, who is sort of radiating in light and glory. But I think what they have wrong is that this is given to the disciples at this moment in time so that they know that they can follow him to this place, that they can go with him. It's almost like a sign of what will come for them. And it's a revealing or an apocalypse of sort. And so what I'm going to do today um, in, in my best way possible, is just walk through the text to keep myself from going into a dissertation on the transfiguration. And so we'll start at the beginning and go through, and if we have time at the end, I'll, I'll give a quick um, synopsis of what I think that, that I tried to point out last year. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and the brother of James, and led them up high in a mountain by themselves. This scene in church history has been interpreted like a thousand different ways. And just from this beginning here, you can see after six days, well, we can talk about creation in the book of Genesis. We can talk about that scene that Brian read from um, uh, the book of Exodus, that Moses is up on the mountain for six days with three other people. 
Um, we, can, we can pull from all these different places, even just in these first lines, to say that a lot is being illusioned here, that Jesus isn't just taking a break with his disciples and going up on the mountain after six days, but he's going up for a particular purpose. This is what we talked about at the sermon, beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus goes up on the mountain and then begins to reteach the law is near similar to what's going on in the book of Deuteronomy, that Moses goes up and interprets the law for them. That this is um, thick with meaning here at the start. And the three people that go up with Moses as well. But not only that, we have, uh, and six days later, I should say, is most likely a reference to that confession. That you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Um, the, uh, the other thing that we see here is, is the role of mountains play in Matthew's gospel. You have the Sermon on the Mount, which we've talked about. We have in Matthew's gospel, more often in Luke, that Jesus goes up onto mountains and prays. We have the temptation scene where Satan brings him up high on a mountain and offers him all the kingdoms of the earth. The transfiguration, where we're at today. Gethsemane um, is up on a hill outside of Jerusalem, the hill mountain of his cross. And then most clearly is that great commission at the end. Jesus is up on the mountain himself, and he tells the disciples that all authority on heaven and earth have been given to him, which is part of what we see in the transfiguration, a glimpse of what it means. And, and there are some people who say the mountain that he gives the great commission from is the same mountain that the transfiguration itself was on. I wouldn't go to bat for that, but it makes you think about all these things that happen in those places. And these three disciples um, who sort of come up, I joked about the Catholic Church, but there are, there are all sorts of interpretations on why these three, but it should be noticed these three are the ones who go to Gethsemane with Jesus too. That these are the ones he seems to sort of trust as his inward circle to some degree. So the next section there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there before it be appeared before him Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. This, there he was transfigured. Um, the word that, that we might use from the Greek, it, it would almost be, there he was metamorphosed in front of them. There he was changed into something anew. And that small verse there, there, and, uh, there he was transfigured before them, is where you could sit for a long time. What does it mean that Christ is transfigured in this way before the disciples? That his face shines like the sun's and his clothes became white as light. Again, from here you could throw out um, texts to many other places in the Bible. Moses, who radiates with light after interacting with God, he's reflecting it. And when we look at these scenes sometimes with Moses, it's how is it like it and how is it different? Jesus becomes one who shines out with light. It's almost like Moses goes up, meets with God, and he becomes a reflection of what happens there. But when God himself goes up there, he becomes the radiation in which he was supposed to be. And that Christ um, couldn't walk around in his earthly sort of life like this because it would just, well, what happens to disciples? They stammer and they fall to the ground. It would be hard to do ministry that Jesus needs to do in the world if nobody could approach him. 
And so what he comes, when he comes to earth is he comes sort of shrouded. It's a, in John's gospel, it says he, he sort of takes up a dwelling amongst us so that we can approach him. But what the disciples see here is sort of what the heavenly Christ, who's existed before all time, looks like in, in sort of that way. And it's almost as in, in film, they talk about the fourth wall being broken. Like, you know, there's, um, uh, you're watching like uh, The Office. I know many people watch The Office. For like most of the first six seasons of The Office, it's like just like they're filming. It seems like it's a documentary at times, but often it's like a, just a regular Office sitcom. And then the last season, all of a sudden, the people who are, who are filming it sort of show up. That this fourth wall is sort of broken. Like um, you sort of begin to see. And so in, in, if you think about acting, you know, there's three walls. There's the stage and then the actors are on it, and the fourth wall is where you are, and that doesn't exist. The famous place where um, the fourth wall is broken is the R-Town, which for some reason, like, every sixth grader is forced to go and see in the Midwest. Maybe none of you had to do that. Uh, in R-Town, the, the narrator of the play at some point yells to the audience, is anybody awake? Is anybody paying attention? Um, and the narrator sort of addresses the audience. Um, what happens in the transfiguration is it's like the fourth wall to heaven is sort of broken, is that what we begin to see is what really is going on. It's like the sheet is taken off of what God has been doing throughout the creation and revealed to us what the actual goal is. It's, uh, apocalypse isn't the word used here, but apocalypse literally means that sort of unveiling, that, that what God has meant is unveiled in the world is what happens in this, that he, he is transfigured in his white, uh, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. We could take this up in ourselves to see into the depths of what's going on. And what happens from here is he's going to begin his death march to the cross. And so for him to be able to see this one last time, to take in the glory of who he is. What happens next is, is that Moses and Elijah are there talking with Jesus. Back when we went through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus in, in Matthew says that he will fulfill the law and the prophets. At the time that Jesus lives, Moses is the chief exemplar of the law. And Elijah is often considered the chief exemplar of the prophets. And so that Jesus is conversing with Moses and Elijah is, uh, is this way of saying that the law and the prophets come and converse with Jesus. That there's all three sort of points of reference. And this is where I think um, the Protestant church really loves this scene. Not so much in that he was transfigured before them, but there's two, there's these three elements. There's uh, the prophets, there's the law, and then there's Jesus. And what happens as we go through this is they disappear and only one is commanded or whom we are to listen to. The dignity of them being there is not to be forgotten, but only Jesus remains in the end. It's as if to say, if you're going to discern between the law and the prophets and in, in, in the way that the early church might have been tempted to set this up is you'd have the law You'd have the prophets, and then you'd have Jesus. And the three of them would sort of mix together to make a grand interpretation. What the transfiguration scene is showing us is you have Jesus at the top of the pyramid, and then the law and the prophets sort of pointing to him and servicing his interpretation, but they are not the things themselves. That the one we are to listen to is Jesus. 
And there's a bit of a, a, an interesting thing here. We've, the disciples are there, Moses and Elijah are there, and we're about to hear um, the voice from heaven too. And there's this, uh, there's this temptation, or there's this interpretation that talks about how um, Moses is dead, uh, Elijah is in paradise, because that's sort of where the Jews at this time thought he had been taken to. Um, Peter, uh, John, and James are of the earth, and the voice of heaven sort of booms and proclaims that this is my son. But the point being is that all of them, all the places you could possibly be, are witnesses to this message. If you're dead, Moses is your representative. If you're in paradise, which at this moment might just be Elijah, but let's not get into that, um, be a lonely paradise. Um, uh, you know, the, uh, that, that's spoken there. The Father from heaven speaks it as well. And so you have these sort of four realms in which this is going. Peter speaks, which if you've been following along in the gospel is not a shocker. Um, Peter said to the Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. There you see that, that struggle that we just talked about is we'll have Jesus' shelter, we'll have Moses' shelter, and we'll have Elijah's shelter. And, and the real point of the scene is there's only one, um, and the other two are sort of servicing from it. You don't put Jesus in a house next to Moses, Elijah, Oprah, your favorite megachurch pastor, um, uh, you know, anybody, I'm trying to think of athletes. I mean, God doesn't share space well with anything. Moses and Eli are certainly better examples than that syndrome, but um, even them, the ones who you might be able to say, well, they're pretty good, aren't supposed to be in shelters alongside Jesus. And Peter speaks, and uh, I like Peter. I think that Peter, without Peter, how, how would pastors know how to preach this passage? Um, how would we know what, what they might be thinking? Um, and this brings me to, in my favorite show, The West Wing, there's a character, Donna, and Donna in the early seasons is there just to ask questions about, like, what's going on in the government. And so, like, Josh, who works for the president, is like, oh, they're going to filibuster. And knowing that most Americans have no idea what that means, Donna has to go, hey, Josh, what's a filibuster? Now, she's a secretary in the White House, so it's hard to believe that this woman doesn't know what a filibuster is. But she's some sense there, an audience member, asking the questions for us. And I think that we see in the Gospels uh, and many texts often, if you think about when you're watching something, why does somebody ask those questions? It's so you know what's going on. So I think Peter, for us, can be like one who asks and says these things so that we can have a better clarity of what's going on. And I'm not a really big fan of the let's be better disciples than Peter sort of mantra. Because if we could be disciples like Peter, we'd walk on water um, we'd run to the tomb uh, in John's gospel. We would be much better, I think, than we are. I think Peter is a great model disciple for us. So I'm not one to say, of course, Peter speaks. Ha, 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 shame on him. Um, somebody had to. And, and Peter here, he says that they'll build three shelters for them. One of the things, as I said, that thinking they could all live in, in three shelters together as equals would be um, not a good thing. But what's also true is that Jesus doesn't need a shelter. The word shelter here is sort of like for holding in glory, for sort of being in that spot. And what Peter misses is that uh, Moses and Elijah might need shelters if they're going to remain in this place. But God and Jesus is, is sort of this one who's sheltered in flesh for us so that we can see and approach this light. 
And the fact that Elijah is there would probably make Peter begin to think this is where heaven and earth are going to be united, which would have been a common Elijah theme at the time. Who wouldn't want to remain there? There's the third way of thinking about this, or the tenth, depending on how you're keeping track, is that Peter also knows that when they come down this mountain, they will walk towards the cross. And who, being friends with somebody, sees glory like this that says, hey, you know, this is great, Jesus, but we got to get on our mission to a, a crucifixion. Um, Jesus, Peter here, I think, is, is thinking in the mind of sort of like, why don't we stay here? Is it necessary to go to that place? And if the previous teaching that we too have to pick up our crosses and die, and that's us, we too would obviously be tempted to say, no, no, it's better to sit in the pre-existent glory before the resurrection than it is to go down and also pick up our crosses and walk to Jerusalem. And when he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God speaks to, to in the Father in heaven speaks twice in Matthew's gospel. This is a mirror of that baptism scene as we talked about where he says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am very well pleased, leaving off to listen to him in the baptism scene. But this bright cloud appears and covers them. And this is sort of that more heightened um, vision of what's going on. And you can think back to the cloud that covers the mountain with Moses and, and other sort of... Um, near mystical-like experiences throughout the Old Testament as this cloud covers, and it's the presence of, uh, it's the presence glory of God that sort of covers in these clouds. And it's an overwhelming sight. The words that the, the Father speaks, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, listen to him, is, is a combination of Psalm 2, which uh, Shelley read for us, and the book of Isaiah. And it's one, Psalm 2 is about this Davidic line. So it's almost to say, this is my son whom I love, who is this renewal of this Davidic line, um, and with whom I am well pleased is this um, way of saying that he identifies with the suffering servant that comes out of Isaiah. Again, so much condensed into, into small, quick instances here. And so as this cloud comes and overwhelms them, the disciples heard this, and they fell face down to the ground, terrified, as we all would. But we see Jesus' face is illuminated here. And in the moment before we too are raised and transfigured, this is where I got lost in the woods last time, is, is to sort of say that what we see in the transfiguration is Christ's future, and it's also our future as well that God is going to sort of renew creation in this way. First and second, Peter will hit on this. This is, this is, and so what happens pre-resurrection is disciples' faces have to go to the ground as Christ's face is lit. And what I think is one of the most moving scenes in Matthew's gospel is what happens is, but Jesus came and touched them. There isn't a lot of Jesus coming and touching the disciples in any of the Gospels. But here in this fear that Jesus comes and touches them, and he removes their fear, he says, get up and don't be afraid. And when they looked, they saw no one except Jesus. That as we fall faces to the ground, terrified in, the, in this vision, and it's, I think the proper reference here is when this is unveiled, it is a terrifying event. 
I mean, it's almost um, C.S. Lewis at the end of uh, The Weight of Glory, which is one of his best essays, says that your neighbor at the end is either going to be something so terrifying you would recoil from it or so ablaze with light that you would disappear, you would dissolve, that the people near to us are going to be transformed in that way. And so what happens here is that they are brought up and they look up and they see no one except for Jesus. But that, that in this moment, that is the terror that would overtake you. Um, we often think only in bad terror, um, only scary is bad. And this is perhaps one of the ways we domesticate God's transcendence to really see the vision and uh, impenetrable light that God dwells in and, and comes for comes out of and where Christ dwells would be equally as terrifying for us. Not in perhaps the same way, but to take that in would be an overwhelming force as well. But as for Jesus who, to come and touch us, get up and don't be afraid. And for us to look around and to see the one whom we have to walk to the cross with. And when they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you see until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Here's another one of those connections that this is perhaps alluding to the, to the resurrection scene. And if you take this mountain scene and put it next to the cross, there's, there's interesting um, diptych. Is that the right way to say that word, Carla? Yeah, if you have two images, if you think of, you know, those things that open like this and on the, well, it's a standard portrait, I guess, one on one side, one on the other. If you take the transfiguration scene and put it with the cross, you would find just these interesting, amazing parallels in the reverse. They're almost a shadow of each other. Here he's received in glory, there he's mocked. Um, here his, his, glow, uh, his clothes are light, there his clothes are gambled for and sort of cost, cast astray. That like, if you, if you painted both those images together, you would see that they're both like, one is the ant- antithesis of the other. And so what we see in this pre-sort of resurrection appearance is the antithesis of what's going to happen on the cross. And what's instructive for the disciples and for us is that the cross needs to precede this. There's no way around that road, as much as we may look and search and try to find. And so we'll close. I think I left one, one moment um, for, for what I shared last year in, um, in Long. In the icon of Christ, and in an icon read story. In the story that we read of Christ's transfiguration upon Mount Tabor, the entire logic of Christian theology, devotion, worship, mysticism, is uniquely concentrated. And as an object of contemplation, the transfiguration image compromises within itself the whole story of creation, incarnation, and salvation in a particular way, with a fixed harmony of elements, with a singular intensity. It allows us in one fixed instant of vision, uh, vision, visionary clarity, to see and to reflect upon the entire mystery of the God-man and the divinization of our humanity in him, which is the orthodox way of saying that we will participate in that someday. The icon, the story, also offers 
offers us a glimpse of the eschatological, the end times, horizon of salvation. For the same, same light that the three disciples were permitted to see break forth from the body of Christ will, in the fullness of time, enter into and transform all of creation with that glory that the Son had with the Father before the world began, that the whole of creation awaits with groans of longing and travail. Then, to us, an image favored by a host of Orthodox spiritual writers, the entire universe will be like the burning bush seen by Moses, a radiant with fire of God's holiness, but not consumed. That the end of this is that it will be like the burning bush of all creation, is that it will be a radiant with God's holiness and fire, but not consumed. And the Christian who prayerfully turns his gaze to the transfiguration and holds it there should see himself taken up into the incarnate God and refashioned after the ancient beauty of the divine image. In early classical Christian theology, the idea is as Christ is refashioning the image of God so that we can move into that place. And so if we prayerfully turn and take our hearts and place ourselves in the gaze of the transfiguration, we see that our humanity, and I think properly Protestants would say, is not refashioned today, but will be refashioned on the day of the Lord. And that what we await now, and what we get a glimpse of here as the curtain is pulled back, as the fourth wall is broken, is a glimpse of what we await when the, co the cosmos creation will be consumed with fire, but not burn. And that God's holiness will be transforming us into what we were intended to be. Let us pray. God, we, like Peter, are able to confess that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And blessed are we for having that revealed to us by your voice from heaven, the Father. And like Peter, when we hear of the path we must go on to receive this renewed creation, we want to pull aside. And so you take the disciples up on the mountain and give them a glimpse of the goal of creation in which we can see the one who speaks these commands, who teaches in this way, transfigured before us, talking with the saints of old. And in our temptation and trying to remain there, a voice comes from heaven and names again for us that you are the Father's Son in whom God is well pleased. And we hear the teaching that we are to listen to him. And as we fall to the ground in those moments, we don't stand up again under our own power, under our will, but it is you who comes near to us, touches us, lifts us up, and instructs us, do not be afraid. So God, as we take that into our hearts, let's realize that we go back down the mountain. We go to our places of work. We go to our places of play. 
We are drawn back into the world. But may we be changed by what we witness there. May we take it up and store it in our hearts so we can radiate the truth of where creation is going in those places. May I saw this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.